Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Today's story is about relationships, including the awkward missteps of first dates. I proceeded to tell her all about me, which at that time was college dropout, practically negative credit score, default on student loans, you know, all the stuff that you typically oh, no. tell a woman to, to, to woo her. I more or less left that dinner thinking, ah, you know, we, we should just be friends. And we ask a biologist, do animals feel love? Love? L- L-O-V-E? I know, I know, I know. No, there's my... no such thing. There's no <laughs> such thing as in the animal kingdom. That, that, that's, an, that's an emotional term. All right, but really, for a second opinion, we call up a philosopher. And yet we see it all the time with animals. So why is it that we tend to not want to really believe what we see? Animals in love. Is it real? Those stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Happy Valentine's Day. Now, I know some of you might be rolling your eyes. Valentine's Day gets a lot of flack for being sappy, cliche, or just a marketing ploy by card and chocolate companies. And I get it. This year, I'm single. The first time in a long time. And it's weird and I guess a little sad. But I actually find it really comforting to hear other people's love stories. Hearing about the triumphs and the missteps in relationships. It's nice to feel like we're not alone, right? That other people have felt similar things about love. And I've had my share of disappointments. Once my date's credit card was declined for a $200 Valentine's Day dinner. And I had to pay. Another time in college, I made homemade chocolates for a guy, and I put them in a little box I decorated with all his favorite things. And this was only for him to tell me that he doesn't believe in Valentine's Day. So disappointing. But I've also had three really life-changing relationships, too. They've shaped who I am today. One of them was my childhood best friend, my first love, a real-life cowboy, and also my first heartbreak. Well, he got married this past summer, so that was hard. And then another important guy, I met him studying abroad in Europe. It was a whirlwind love, lots of good wine and bread. And one of those loves you know isn't going to last and is probably going to end quite sadly you kind of just seize the moment anyway. And my last big love, well, he moved cross country to be with me in West Virginia. He was one of my best friends in college and probably one of the funniest guys I know. I think he might have been the closest to the real thing, whatever that means. But it was one of those situations where love just isn't enough, you know? Where two people can genuinely love each other, but the rest of life gets in the way. This last love is a little fresh, so I've been doing a lot of soul-searching lately. As cliche as that sounds, learning to love myself. I think this might be the hardest of all, learning to be our own best friend, to genuinely love and respect ourselves. Pretty tricky stuff. So I asked you to tell me all about your best Appalachian love story, and you guys delivered. Thank you for trusting us with your stories. There's more than we can include in this episode, but we'll hear a few of our favorites. The first love story is from a listener in Morgantown, West Virginia. Courtney Ostaff met her partner Jason D. April 20 years ago. They found each other online before all the dating apps like Tinder. Courtney had broken up with her fiancé in college, so she put together a list of 25 things she wanted in a future partner. And she posted it in the personal section on Yahoo. Now, I got a ridiculous number of responses, and I certainly wasn't wasting dial-up on downloading pictures. Because, right, one high-res photo could have taken all night to download, (laughs) and we only had one phone line. I wasn't doing that. And there were a handful of other 
interesting emails, but as it turned out, Jason has a way with the written word. He's sarcastic and he's acidic and he's hilarious. So I agreed to meet him in public at the movie theater at the mall in Bridgeport, back when the mall was a happening place. (laughs) So I dressed up in a silk blouse and I did my makeup and I did my hair and I go up and I meet and there's this tall skinny guy with big glasses and big curly hair. And he looked even younger than I did, even though he's five years older. So he's just standing there and I'm like, oh, okay. Now, and I don't even remember what movie we saw, but what I remember is that he was quietly witty all the way through. Really? I was smitten. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we've had some hard years and we've had some good years, but 20 years later, I am still wildly in love with my husband. I mean, I don't brag about it much because nobody wants to hear how happy somebody is, but he's so good to me. Now, last spring, he worked all day, and then he came home and minded the children all evening so that I could write a book. I mean, that's how you get a book written, ladies. Your husband does all the household chores. That's how it happens. Wow. What I like about your guys' story is, like you said, you didn't download a photo. You purely went off, do I like what this person is writing? Like, do I like their personality? Are they making me laugh? We're really happy together, but I think part of that is to remember that it's a choice and we have always chosen each other Mm -hmm. always and he's done it for me and I've done it for him and that matters so going forward uh do you have any goals or hopes for your guys's relationship I'm 43 and my grandmother lived to be 96 so if I live to be as old as my grandmother it's like another 50 years now my husband is five years older so he's 48 I think <laughs> 47, 48, <laughs> somewhere in there. Close enough. <laughs> but his family doesn't tend to live as long. So I kind of feel that I need to treasure the time that I have with him because I will outlive him. And I need to um, take this time that I have because it may be 20 years, it may be 30 years, but it won't be forever. And I'm going to be alone without him. Is there anything else you wanted to share? If the person that you're dating doesn't make you feel good, if they don't say nice things about you to you or to your (laughs) friends, then look for someone who wants you, who says nice things about you, even if they don't look like or do the things that you think that you want, because it's more important to be with somebody who wants you than to be with someone who looks good but doesn't really want you. That was Courtney Ostaff speaking about her relationship with her husband, Jason D'April. They live in Morgantown, West Virginia, with their two kids. So we're talking about human love, but we're also curious about animal love. If you've ever observed animals interact, it seems like they feel love. Think about penguins. They mate for life. Or elephants. Before they mate, they form a bond through wrapping their trunks together. It's a lot like a hug. And some types of wolves mate for life and help raise the wolf pups. So is it true? Do animals actually feel love? A few years back, our producer, Roxy Todd, saw an otter that got her thinking about this question. She looked really sad um, all by herself on the rocks, not playing because there's no one to play with and not swimming. Roxy says she'd expected to see not one otter, but lots of otters doing what otters typically do. You know, like when you picture otters, what do you picture? Like they're having fun right and like silky brown velvety guys (laughs) with big beautiful eyes (laughs) yeah and like swimming I I don't know I so I had this picture in my head maybe like an expectation that they were going to be frolicking and doing all these tricks in the water but this otter seemed despondent I just kept wondering like what happened and what was going through her head and and could she feel things like loneliness I guess And if she could feel loneliness, Roxy wondered, could she also feel other emotions? Like, could she feel love? 
To find out, I called up Rich Rogers. Now, he's the fur bear biologist for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources, and he's also helping study the regional otter population. And so I asked him if there's noticeable love between otters and maybe perhaps with their young. Noticeable what? Love with otters. Like if, if they, if you notice, I guess, with their young. Love? L-O-V-E? I know, I know, I know. No, there's My... no such thing. There's no <laughs> such thing as in the animal kingdom. That, that that's an that's an emotional term, uh, but there there's a fidelity to that family unit unit until those young disperse, and then no, there's nothing there. But come on, that's the science side of things, right? I mean, I grew up surrounded by animals on a farm, and I felt genuine love from animals. And I also observed how lonely our one horse was until we got him a companion. Now, Roger says love is an emotional term, but don't animals also have emotions? Since Darwin, scientists have thought that there are some basic emotions that um, animals can feel. That's Cynthia Willett, a professor of philosophy at Emory University. She published a book called Interspecies Ethics in 2014, which explores animals' wide variety of emotions. Basic ones would include sadness. We could recognize that in animals, and I think we all can see that animals can be sad or happy. Um, But Darwin did not include love. He did not include love among those basic emotions. And so there's been this prejudice or this bias, uh, at least since that time, that animals could not experience love. And yet we see it all the time with animals. So why is it that we tend to not want to really believe what we see? I mean, what makes us humans so special that only we can feel love? Well, it says there's a few different types of animal love that she's studied. The mother to offspring love, which she says is clearly established, but also friendship love. Willett says in a recent study, a snake became friends with a hamster. It's prey and that they even cuddled together. And so the third type of animal relationship... The most surprising kind of love at all is romantic love. Like love love, like not just friendship love. Willett says a good example of this behavior is with birds. So much like us, birds have courtship rituals. Basically, they date. They bring food to one another, do dances, clean one another. Honestly, everything you want in a partner. So animals generally are social creatures, Willett says. They need companionship, which in a way is a form of love. And without it, they start to lose that joie de vivre, that sense of being alive. Joie de vivre is a French phrase, meaning that sense of life that gives us purpose, that makes life fuller and richer. Something we often find through relationships, love. And Willett says animals feel it too. And when they don't have that, they shrink, they diminish, they have less energy, life goes dull. Although Willett hasn't studied otters specifically, anecdotally she says she's seen them play and bond with each other and humans, and that they kind of remind her of how dogs love. So, yes, Willett says she believes otters do feel love. And it's not that the science or biologists are wrong. There just might be more nuance. And for the West Virginia Wildlife Center, where Roxy originally saw that lonely otter, well, Trevor Moore, the biologist at the center, says he can't definitively rule one way or another on love, loneliness, or any human-like emotion. Animals definitely have personalities. There are definitely individual personalities. Um... You can see that that's very well documented throughout the science and in captivity and in the wild. But how much we project our own emotions and our own view of them, I don't know. But good news. Moore says the center is currently trapping otters to accompany the lone otter in the exhibit. So what do you think? Do you think animals can feel love? Let us know inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. Or send us a valentine, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. 
Okay, I'm probably a little biased here, but I have to say I lean more toward the philosophical perspective that Dr. Willett argues. I mean, I've definitely experienced love for my dogs, and they've gotten me through some especially rough moments. My dogs seem to accept me unconditionally. I recently talked with a young woman who feels the same about her dog. Ida Miller is the proud owner of Sephora, a black and brown German shepherd mix. I initially met Ida in Sephora when I'd taken my dogs to the dog park in Morgantown. Sephora is somewhat of the gatekeeper or the queen of the dog park, if you will. She kind of vets the new dogs, if that makes sense. Everyone knows Sephora. Ida has had Sephora for three years. She adopted her in college. Ida says she almost gave Sephora up because owning her first puppy was really overwhelming. Now she's like the love of my life. Like I couldn't imagine being without her, like even just for a day. How do you feel like you guys have grown together? Um, I think Sephora has helped me so much as a person. When I got her, um, my mom had just passed away like less than a year before that. And I had also um, like one of my best friends. We had just ended our friendship of from kindergarten until that point. So Sephora kind of helped me to, like, fill that void in a way. I mean, it was different, but, um, like, I was really lonely, and it helped a lot. And also, before I had Sephora, I was, um, like, out of control, like, partying. And so getting Sephora, like, I had to be, like, more responsible because I had to take care of her. And, like, I wanted to do that, too. Since I've known you, you are, like, always with Sephora and, like... I just feel like Sephora comes first now. Oh, she does. Sephora comes before anything else. Um, like, I've even had, like, romantic relationships with men and because Sephora. <laughs> Sephora is, like, the true love and, like, the test of, like, whether someone else will be able to be a part of your guys' life. Oh, yeah. Like, I hardly ever let men meet Sephora. Um, <laughs> I would pick Sephora over anybody else. Um I don't know, like, even if I met my soulmate, like, if they weren't okay with Sephora, um, like, I would just have to tell the soulmate goodbye. Um, I don't know, oh like, I, I could never, like, um, like, betray my loyalties to Sephora. She just means so much to me. Do you think you'd do anything special with her on Valentine's Day? Oh, probably. I usually buy Sephora, like, a Valentine's Day gift, um, and Really? I Oh, yeah, I buy Sephora gifts for all of the holidays, um, kind of like she's my <laughs> child or something. Sephora lives um, a, a luxurious life for a dog, I guess you could say. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll be buying Sephora, like, some toys and some treats for Valentine's Day. That was Ida Miller talking about the love of her life, her dog, Sephora. Do you have a dog or a cat or heck, an iguana or even a fish that you feel a special affection and bond for? We'd love to see all the animals out there who listen to Inside Appalachia with their human companions. Tweet us a photo. We're at In Appalachia. Up next, we'll hear more love stories from our listeners. Human love stories, too. And my grandmother divulges a tale about her first love. A story that came as a complete surprise when I first heard it. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Have you ever? Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. 
More at concord.edu. I was recently talking with my grandmother, my Oma, about love, trying to grasp any wisdom I can from her. And I mentioned that we're working on an episode about love, and it turns out she has a special story of her own. So I asked her if it'd be okay if I switched on my recorder. Yeah, my, my first love was a Russian soldier. Which is, people should understand, is unexpected, given that you were a German living in East Germany. Oh yeah, I, I, I am German. <clears throat> And I lived in Germany, in East Germany, and this was under the rule of Stalin. And it was very, everything was very precarious. So you were never safe, and anything could happen anytime. And honestly, that's what makes the story so fascinating. Generally, East Germans lived in a lot of fear of the Russians, and they definitely didn't socialize with them. So as the story goes, my Oma, she was working at her father's lace factory, and in came a Russian soldier who was actually looking to buy lace for his family back home. His name was Yuri, Yuri Alexandrovich. You still remember his last name? (laughs) <laughs> and so I saw him. I I liked him immediately. <laughs> what and what was it about him? He was uh, tall and blonde, blue eyes, and he was had this. Um, <clears throat> he he was smiled. Yeah. He smiled all the time. And so my father introduced me to him. I hoped that I would see him again, but it was uncertain. And how old do you think you were? I was must have been about 17. Uh, a teenager. The time when we all kind of have that first love. Yeah. And uh I just thought he was very handsome. <clears throat> and were you, could you guys communicate? Well, he, yes. He came in the door and I was at the other end of the office. And so then when he was done with what he was doing, then he came over and he smiled. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he wanted to know my name. But he spoke Russian and you spoke German. He didn't speak German. Right. I didn't speak Russian. So how did you guys communicate? Well, just like, you know, not with speaking, (laughs) (laughs) but with the eyes maybe. I was just fascinated by him and he was a very good mannered and uh, <clears throat> yeah and then uh, he said he would like to <clears throat> to see me again I mean <coughs> he somehow I don't know anymore how we communicated with words not but he may have known, learned a few German words. Enough to say he wants to see you again. Yeah, (laughs) yes. First, my father invited him to our house in the afternoon for coffee. Which, was that allowed? To invite a Russian soldier? Well, we didn't ask anyone. We just did. Yeah. See? Well, anyway... We met again uh, at my father's factory, and um, there was a table outside, and we sat down at the table. But we couldn't, we, we just, we wrote 
and drew a few things that we could understand. Could both of you have gotten, or maybe more so him, in trouble for, for yes. spending time together? That's right. That's true? Yeah, that's true. So he kind of jeopardized his... Yeah, he did. ...role as a soldier. Yeah, he did. And then the next thing I heard was that he was transferred. And during all this, East Germany was becoming pretty dangerous and increasingly cut off from the rest of the world. So before the border wall was completely finished, my Oma crossed illegally into West Germany. But she still thought of Yuri, you know? He was her first love. So she learned Russian, just in case she ever saw him again. And months later, Yuri showed up at her parents' doorstep in her hometown. He came in civilian clothes, and guess what? He had learned German. So my mother told him that I was gone, and so he said he wants to go to West Germany. <clears throat> and, um, well, be with me. Yeah, when, when my mother told him I was in West Germany, then he wanted to go there, and my mo- also illegally. And so my mother said to him, now you think that over carefully, because you know, under Stalin, when you uh, go away to the West, they will uh, get after your parents. And they may not be safe. They might be imprisoned. Like, so if they can't catch him, they would hurt his family. Yeah, okay. it would. So then he didn't go. And that was the last I saw him. It's, it's kind of sad. Yeah, it's sad, yes. It's very sad. But um, I never forgot him. Did you ever try to track him down? There is no, was no way yeah. to track him down. There was no way. Nothing. You couldn't. Couldn't. It was just, for me, <clears throat> just a beautiful memory. That's all it could be. It made me very sad. But that's the way it was. In those days... You had to be very tough. Yeah. But still... You know? It... That love can be painful even when you're living through painful times. Yeah. You know, here you are living in the aftermath of World War Two, and yet love and heartbreak still hurts. Yes. Well, for one thing... It was something I couldn't do anything about, you know. I I saw him, I fell in love with him right there. I just, he was for me a very special being. And no matter, uh, I never forgot him. You see, now I'm very old, but I never, I still remember how I felt about him when that happened. Shall I tell you one thing? It was a love that was more in your heart. And it was, um, <clears throat> it was not a sexual kind of a thing, you know. Uh-huh. It was, you loved that person with all your heart. And he did too, see. We both like a like a soul level connection, like a soulmate. Yeah, a soulmate. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, it's it's a special gift I got to feel know, that by experiencing that that he just he was in my heart, and for me it is special because. I know that there is such a thing. I met others and I liked them very much. 
but not like that. And you see, even now, I, I can only be happy about it. So it's something that was very special all my life long. And now I'm 92. And I still remember how that was. I think what is especially beautiful is here you'd just gone through the war, you know? Some very awful things happened. Yes. And so then to find, a, to have I joy. Know. Yeah. You had this, this light in your life. Yes, that's right. And I will always. This next couple actually learned about each other through a FOIA request. The Freedom of Information Act allows the public to request previously unreleased information from government offices. Think emails, documents, faxes, etc. Anyway, Stephen Allen Adams was working as a reporter when he filed a FOIA. And Jessica Wentz was the state government employee who was responsible for compiling all the documents for his request. That meant sorting through thousands of emails. I hated him before I even met him because I had had such a headache going through all of those emails that August. But when they finally did meet by chance, Stephen immediately adored Jessica. Over a year passed and they moved on to different jobs. And Jessica finally agreed to go on a first date. On Valentine's Day, no less. You know, I made her spaghetti. Uh, I (laughs) had a computer screen on the uh, table that had a heart on it. (laughs) It had our initials in the the heart, by the way. Yeah. And then, yeah, cheesy and frankly, in hindsight, well over the top. (laughs) <laughs> and then to add to that, like I said, I'm overly honest, so I proceeded to tell her all about me, which at that time was college dropout, uh, practically negative credit score, default on student loans, you know, all the stuff that you typically oh, no. tell a woman to, to, to woo her. Yeah, this was <laughs> this was great first date conversations. And for me, he... <laughs> For me, I, I left that dinner. It was, it was a great dinner. Stephen's a great cook. But uh, I more or less left that dinner thinking, ah, you know, Stephen's not for me. He's, he's kind of checked off, you know, the wrong boxes for me, being overly honest about some of his uh, prior history. And I decided after that first date, yeah, you know what? Okay, we, we can be friends. He's a nice guy, but we, we should just be friends. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, and that's what we were. We, we, we. We became friends. We hung out. So you guys get to know each other more over the next few months. And, and then what happens? Uh, in, in June of 2011, I lost my grandfather, who was very much like a father to me. And Stephen was there for me during you know a, a very rough time in my life. And I, I will always remember when I came home. I'm originally from southern West Virginia. So when I came back um, to Charleston following my, my grandfather's service, Stephen was waiting right outside his apartment uh, steps, waiting for me to come home so that we could talk about it. And I started making this this realization that any man that is willing to sit outside on his apartment stoop and, and talk with me for hours about losing my grandfather and offering unwavering support uh, definitely meant that we, we could maybe have a second first date. It just felt right um, and it has been right ever since. The thing about our relationship is we talk about everything. We really do. You're married, right? We are. We will be celebrating five years of marriage on June 11th. To make our political uh, story even better, uh, our wedding fell in the middle of a special legislative session at the Capitol. <laughs> 
because of course it would. Uh, that would be right. the year that the state was really struggling to come to an agreement on a state budget. And uh, literally, it was not even two hours after the Senate had voted on a budget and had passed it out of the Senate. We were married on the steps in front of the Senate doors. And the moment that I finished my wedding vows, the bells rang to issue in the House members to come into chambers. And I could, I can't think of a better wedding story overall for us that really kind of captures our relationship and, and how our work intertwines with one another. Jessica Wentz Adams and Stephen Allen Adams have been married for almost five years. They live together in Charleston, West Virginia. Every relationship goes through different stages, and lifelong partners eventually face a difficult chapter. Our next story is about grief and loss. Danny McNeely and Tim Albee talked about what it was like for each of them to lose their previous life partners. If you could say you have one regret in life, what would it be and why? I try to say that I'm... I live with no regrets, but if I had to sit down and really think about it, I feel like that almost year that I lost of really knowing my daughter after my partner had killed herself, I was that parent that I swore I'd never be that year. And, um, you know, pawning her off on the grandparents and, and staying out all night, you know, I went on 19 days awake one time, partying in my basement. And my daughter looked at me and ran to her room and started crying and screaming. I looked in the mirror and I was pale and... But at that time, when I didn't sleep, I didn't have to see that vision of him hanging in our garage. If I can beat that and get through what I did with my partner, I think I can handle almost anything. <laughs> if you could have a five-minute conversation with anybody, past or present, who would it be and why? Um, not to go back to, obviously, the relationship. We had a routine. He was a very, like, he would get up every morning two hours before I did. He would get my daughter up. They'd have their little time. He'd cook breakfast. He'd bring her into the bedroom, and he'd lay her next to me. He'd kiss her on the forehead and say, Princess, Daddy, I'll see you later. And then he'd kiss me on my forehead, and he would say, My prince, I'll see you later. You have a good day. And then we would sleep for another hour, and I'd get up, and I'd get her ready for preschool. The day that he killed himself, now thinking back, um, when he kissed me, he, he kissed her, and he said... Remember, Daddy always loves you. Wow. He never went out of routine. And then when he kissed me, he said, don't ever blame yourself and know that um, I love you and you were the best thing that happened to me. And I didn't catch it because I was halfway asleep. And I blamed myself. And I was like, to, I would probably, it'd be him and be like, you know, why? Like, we had a great life. And it took his dad saying, because he asked me to marry him. And he said, I can't ask you to be my husband if my family thinks that you're my roommate. And uh, his dad told him that he'd rather have a dead son than a faggot. And it was about four months after that, his dad had said that, that and then he had killed himself. I just wanted, I just wanted to know why, like, just that one question, if, even if it's not even five minutes, just like, like, why? I'll ask you the same question, because it's actually a really good question. <laughs> Again, not to go back to the relationship thing, <laughs> we're all sappy but today. yeah, we're sappy as could be. Hallmark, I hope you're not listening to this. Um, if you are, cut us a check. Please. <laughs> but um, Eddie and I had our commitment ceremony in 2011, and in 2014, we were told at that time it was a big issue all over the country of marriage equality, and it was still a state-by-state -state issue. And on October the 6th, 2014, it passed in Virginia. And I walked into our living room, and he had just woken up from a nap, and he was watching the news, and he said, well, baby, it's, it's now official. It'll be soon here in West Virginia. What do you want to do? And I said, as soon as it's legal, I want to go to the courthouse and get the paperwork done. I said, I don't need another big ceremony. I don't need all of that. I want to just make it legal. 
And he said, okay. And then he said, well, now we have to do something. And so we had all, we were literally making all the plans and we weren't even married yet. And that night about midnight, uh, he looked at me, he said, I love you. And I said, I love you too. And he walked upstairs. And for some reason at 2.30 in the morning, I woke up wide awake. I didn't know why, but I woke up just wide awake. And my little dog, Chloe, that he bought me, she was jumping around and we were playing and everything. And about 3.30, she jumped down off the couch and I heard her run up the steps to the bedroom. And she let out not even a bark or a yelp, but it was like the most horrendous noise I had ever heard. And I ran upstairs and he was in bed and he wasn't moving, he wasn't responsive. I called 911. The paramedics got there and they worked on him for about an hour. And they said he's been gone since about 2.30. And my first thought was, that was when I woke up. Should I have gone upstairs sooner? But if I had five minutes, I would ask him, did I do everything to make you happy? And I would just let him know that I would rather have five years of something wonderful than a lifetime of nothing special. Absolutely. I think that's kind of why maybe we get along very well. We kind of different situations, but same. Similar history. Yeah. <laughs> different roads, but similar right. views. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> you done got me all my all my feels before oh. I have to put on makeup. Lord. <laughs> We've done empty out the closets of all the skeletons. That was Danny McNeely and Tim Albee discussing their grief after losing loved ones. They recorded their conversation back in 2018 when the StoryCorps mobile recording bus visited Charleston, West Virginia. The pandemic has pushed some of us closer together, perhaps too close, like literally working and living together in the same room. But a lot of relationships have had to endure distance. Our next story is about a couple who hasn't seen each other in person for over a year now. Ayn Amjad is a doctor and public health official in West Virginia. Her partner, Salar Kafai, lives in Canada. They've been dating long distance for eight years, and they managed to make it work by seeing each other every few weeks or at most two months. But because of COVID, they haven't seen each other since last January, the longest they've ever gone. So how do they keep it going? Um, <laughs> Thank it's... goodness for FaceTime and WhatsApp <laughs> yeah. and Zoom, all the you know, electric mediums <laughs> that uh, you know, keep us in touch and we get to see each other. Uh, but it is very challenging uh, not being able to physically be in one another's presence. Uh, but, you know, there is that hope that, you know, things will get better and that we can reconnect in person sooner rather than later. Yeah, it it, it is very strange when you say it out loud. And it's, it's very abnormal. Um, but we really just don't talk about it, I guess, because then it makes us very sad when we say it out loud. Of course. I think a lot of people ultimately give up on long distance because it is so hard. And Clearly, you guys have a special enough bond that it's worth holding on to. Can you kind of talk about that, why you have decided to stick it out, even though, you know, the long distance, there's not quite an end in sight yet. You know, it, you know, it'll be there one day, but you don't have like an end date to it yet. What makes you guys decide to stay together? Uh, I think just the uh, common values that we uh, both have. Uh, with one another like you know obviously there's the physical attraction with one another uh, but our outlook our perspective uh, the family values uh, that we've got uh, are quite strong Uh, the bond that we've got is quite strong I can say that's what's uh, kept me in that I haven't met anybody who could ever uh, be better than uh, I from my perspective I love her wholeheartedly I've met a lot of people in my life and, um, and I, and I tell Solar this all the time, you know, that there's no one that I would say can, you know, 
beat him in, in, in any of those respects. And besides all that, you know, to, um, you know, my father who did pass away, he, he never talked to me about relationships much, but he made two comments about Salar. One was that, you know, he's a very nice, gentle soul. You know, he has no um, angry marks on his face. He has no wrinkles. He's such a calm person. And he also once told me, you know, don't marry someone just so that they're there with you every day to have a perfect life, you know, be, be with someone that you enjoy, that you can be with your whole life, even if they're far away. You know, you don't have to marry someone just so that you come home and have a picket fence life, you know. But, you know, I, I found Salar. We found each other a second time around for a reason. So it doesn't matter if he lives in, in Canada to me. I'm not going to just break up with him just because he's not here with me. Just I have someone who is at home when I come home at five o'clock. It, it doesn't matter to me. So Paul Newman said, you know, I have steak at home. Why am I going to go out for a hamburger? So salt, salt is my <laughs> I'll, I'll keep my steak. <laughs> that was Ayn Amjad and Salar Kafai. They're engaged, but currently have an international long-distance relationship. They say once they're allowed to travel again, they hope to meet somewhere warm, perhaps a beach. I want you all to know that working on this episode has brought me so much joy and honestly reflection on how I perceive love. And what I heard in our show is that love comes in so many forms, whether it's romantic or friendship, human to human or human to animal, or heck, I guess animal to animal. All beings seem to want to be loved and feel love. Because I think once you felt it, you never forget it. There's one more story I want to leave with you all. And again, it represents another type of love. A love for the outdoors. Something that deep down I think is in all our DNA. For me, one of the ways that I feel most connected to nature is through skiing. It was one of my first loves. In fact, my mom used to take me skiing as a baby in a little backpack. I don't know, honestly, if that would be allowed anymore. Anyway, cross-country skiing is more work than downhill skiing, but you can really get into some backcountry, see views that you normally hike to in the summer. Chip Chase is the owner of the White Grass Ski Touring Center in Tucker County, West Virginia. People have been skiing there for more than 40 years. Outdoors is the one of the few things that's safe and okay to do. And everybody in the world gets cabin fever and wants to get off the couch. It's like, I am so tired of being inside and I'm so tired of looking at my computer and reading books. I've got to go outside. So winter is three or four months a year and other sports don't work as well in the winter. So skiing is kind of like a logical, well, that's designed for winter. Okay. Should we say we're retired yeah. school teachers and we want an adventure? We're ready to have a little adventure today. Well, it's just different and it's a little bit less expensive. It's a little bit more natural and it's quieter. Um, and there's also, we get a lot of people that are younger, that are aerobically fit. They mountain bike and kayak and run and, you know, they, they're backpacker hikers. Yeah, I've been coming up here for 40-some years, cross-country, my family, my kids, husband. And we are. Recreational cross-country skiing doesn't have to be real aerobic. It can be gentle and, and, and mellow, and you can bite off as much as you want to. Cross-country skiing has aesthetics real strongly. So downhill skiers love to look at the view from the top of the mountain. They love to see the trees adorned in spruce, and they love to see the uh, the beauty of winter and be outside and 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 the cross country skiers like that too. So we share a lot of a lot of the we share a lot of the same love and it's both it's skiing it's outdoors. It's really distant because everybody's going in multiple directions in different times and spaces. It's not a common meeting place where the lift is, but there is the lodge, you know. So people all come back to the parking lot. But other than that, people go out in different directions. I have a loop that Jeremy uh, 
did for us out that way. Three mile um, trail. They can't believe how quiet it is. And of course, snow muffles sound. And it can be in the winter is almost more hushed and quiet than any time of the year, just the way nature does that. And that is a nice thing that people do like about our sport is it's very, very, very quiet. West Virginia should look at snow in winter as, as an opportunity to get out there. And, and the way the clothing is right now, and the, all the good gloves and mittens and hats and all the great socks that people have anymore, you stay warm. And I had a, a friend from Morgantown say to me, why should I cross-country ski? It's wet and cold. And I thought for a second, and I went, you know, that is the concept people have, but you know what? Cross-country skiing is dry and warm. Cross-country skiing is naturally a safe sport for COVID because we always wear masks anyway. Yeah, I mean, every cross-country skier has got a necky and a mask on their face before the COVID hit. So all we got to do is just use the same old mask and we're COVID yeah, yeah, protocol. Yeah. We're good to go. That was Chip Chase, the owner of the Whitegrass Ski Touring Center in Tucker County, West Virginia. Our associate producer, Eric Douglas, produced that story. Well, I hope you get to spend time with your loves sometime soon. Whether it's skiing, cuddling with your dog, or having a conversation with a loved one that you haven't been able to see in person. Anyway... I hope you enjoyed today's show as much as I did. Happy Valentine's Day. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jake Exerces, Fussell, Dinosaur Burps, Pottington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Roxy Todd is our producer, Eric Douglas is our associate producer, and our executive producer is Andrew Phillips. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.